0: Happy Sunday to you. Good to see you. <sighs> if you are new around here, my name is David Morrow, and uh, I am a part of this congregation and love being here, and every once in a while I get to do some preaching. So we're going to do some preaching today. We are uh, in a series called 4D Love that is looking at the four directions or dimensions of God's love, which truly is the heartbeat of what Jesus taught. That our job as kingdom people is to receive the love of God, and when we receive the love of God and experience who he tells us we are, we're able to love ourselves, uh, which is what Greg talked about last week, and it is out of that overflowing of love that then we love others and we love creation, which is what we're talking about next week. So today, the focus is on how do we love others well? How do we love our neighbor well? And so as a, uh, a, a way to show some, uh, show some love to uh, Mr. Rogers, the title of this sermon is, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Won't You Be My Neighbor? So here's my question. Why does loving our neighbor matter to God? Because, I, I mean, what God could do is just say, I'm going to give you love and then you give it back to me. But for some reason, God wants us to love others. And I was thinking about this this week when uh, my wife and I, we were in the kitchen, and we were in the kitchen with our mildly precocious seven-year-old Isaac. Now, Isaac was with us in there, and he just looks at us and kind of asks one of those random questions kids ask. He says, Mom, Dad, are you guys always going to be together? And like, we had this moment like, oh, this is one of those moments. Like those parenting moments they tell you about, where there's so much riding on this moment. And so we try and affirm him and say, Isaac, mom and dad, when we promised we were going to be together, we're going to stay together, you don't have to be worried about that. Like, just relax, buddy. You're going to be okay. Like, your mom and dad love each other. We plan on staying married and all this sort of stuff. And uh, once we get through what we assume is our diatribe of how we affirm him in who he is, he looks at us as if we missed the whole point of the question. (laughs) And he looks at us and says, "Okay, great. But just in case something happens, I want you guys to know I want to be with mom." <laughs> 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 oh. It's like <laughs> kids are the best. But I I mean, Isaac is the stereotypical mama's boy. I mean, like, he is the kind of kid that when he walks into the, the living room, if my wife and I are on different sides of the couch, he'll, like, pretend like he's going to come up and hug me and then just at the last minute fake and go to mom. Like, it, he is the stereotypical mama's boy. But what I'm so grateful about with my wife is that when he does that, most of the time what my wife will do is look at Isaac and go, Isaac, if you want to love me, you need to love the people I love. That if you want to care for me, the way you care for me is by caring for the people that I love. And I think this is part of the idea behind why God thinks it's so important for us to love our neighbor. Because how we treat other humans, how we treat other people who are made in the very image of God, is how we treat God. That those two things are are not separate from each other. It is not a peripheral aspect of discipleship to love our neighbor. That loving our neighbor is how we love God. Jesus tells a story about it where he, he, he talks about how there's this person who's at the altar. And they're giving their offering to God. And in that moment, they remember that their neighbor has something against them. And Jesus tells them, go be reconciled with your neighbor and then come back and offer your gift. And I don't think it's, go be reconciled to your neighbor so you can get your head space cleared so you can worship me appropriately. I think the heartbeat of it is that if we are reconciling and doing the work of loving our neighbor, we are worshiping God in that moment. That those two things are not separate from each other. And in this series, we're we're looking at these four directions of love, but we're also looking at it through the lens of attachment theory. Now, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist, so I need to kind of dumb this down for me. Um, So in order to talk about attachment theory, here's what it is. Attachment theory is essentially how we relate to others is influenced by how our relationships at our earliest stages in life were. That those who cared for us when we were young, how they cared for us is going to affect us in unique, in unique ways in how we care for others. And we're talking about two specific types of attachments. Like some of us have what we call anxious attachments. And others of us have what we call avoidant attachments. And so because I am at any given moment trying to win dad points with my near teenager of a daughter, what I wanted to do is show you a picture of my dog because she keeps telling me I need to show you a picture of my dog. So this is Louie. And Louie and I have a complicated relationship. Um, And here's the thing. What I have discovered about Louie, which is what I also think is true about us, is that dogs perfectly resemble the anxious attachment. That they fear losing connection. That what it, like when, <laughs> when I walk out the door to go get the mail and then I walk back in the house, this dog is like freaking out as if all of a sudden they assumed I was gone forever. And oftentimes what it means to be anxiously attached is that we can have such a negative view of ourselves, and in turn an unrealistically positive view of others. So there's this one aspect of us that is anxiously attached for some of us, but then there's other of us who are more avoidantly attached. And I think the avoidant attached people most closely resemble cats. (laughs) Because here's the thing, cats, they don't fear losing connection, they fear closeness. Or they at least assume if I'm close to you, it's because I'm providing you a gift. It's like, I know you want me, but here's the thing, you got to earn that love. Like, if I come close to you, it's because I either want something from you, or I'm bored. Uh, and, and oftentimes what it means is for those more avoidantly attached, you have an overly positive view of yourself, which is what I imagine cats have. Like, and a very negative view of others. Particularly the dogs in the room. And like my in-laws have cats and it's amazing. Like I I I really I have an even more complicated relationship with cats than I do my dog. But like there's there's this one cat that one I could be there for a whole weekend and I will never see that cat. Because the cat has not deemed me worthy of her presence. And yet, even though we have these different ways that attachments have shown up in our lives, whether negative or positive, all the research shows that you and I are hardwired for relationship. We are hardwired to attach to those closest to us. And what can happen is, as Kevin talked about a few weeks ago, when he used that analogy of Velcro, That you and I, the more we try and attach, we try and cling, if if we are anxiously attached or avoidantly attached or however we show up, sometimes that Velcro, like Greg's gross back brace, like it just doesn't stick the way it used to. Like we think that this is going to help us because we're hardwired for that relationship, but then it burns us and we get broken by it and so we shrink back. And so, what we're going to talk about today are, um, what are the barriers to attachment? What are the barriers that we all have to living out the command of Jesus to love our neighbor as ourself? And in order to do that, we're going to look at a parable of Jesus from Luke 10. And it's probably the most well-known parable that Jesus tells, and which is part of the problem with it. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now. As many of you know, because you're Bible scholars, before Luke 10 comes Luke 9. And in Luke 9 comes the turning point in the entire book of Luke. Luke 9.51 is a critical verse in the book of Luke. It says that Jesus now set his face towards Jerusalem. So everything before that in the book of Luke was ministry, Jesus ministering primarily in the region of Galilee. And Everything after that is Jesus' laser focus towards the cross. He's focused on what the cross is going to mean, what it's going to require of him. But in order to get from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, he has to get through the enemy-occupied territory of Samaria. So that's our context. So let's look at the beginning part of this parable. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, what do I need to do to be saved? Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And then the expert in the law answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. So he's quoting the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. And love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Which could have been the end of the conversation. But then... It says, but he, the expert in the law, wanting to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that is the entry point for the parable. But the problem with the parable of the Good Samaritan is how familiar we are with it. That we think we know what it means because it is so well known within our culture. Like every state in our culture has some kind of Good Samaritan law on the books which essentially just means that we have a duty to assist when somebody is in need. It also means that we can have an immunity from liability if we assist in a way that actually does more harm. And so what this has meant is that for most people in our culture, if you boil down the meaning of the Good Samaritan, it's help people in need. And the problem is that Jesus was dealing with massively different types of issues when he's telling this story. Because if you've been around church for any length of time, you've probably heard that Jews and Samaritans were not buddies. That like, there was this animosity that went back for century after century after century, uh, around 700 years before Jesus was there, there was this animosity and hatred, and it was animosity and hatred based on racial, political, and religious otherness. So in order to get a sense of this, I want to show you a map, and you know this is going to be fun because I have a laser pointer. So here's the map. Let's see if, ah, this is so much better. We had a terrible laser pointer at the first service. Okay, so Galilee is up here where Jesus was doing his ministry and Jerusalem is down here. So to get from here to here, you have to go through this area, which is Samaria in the middle. And here's the thing. In order to get there, oftentimes people would try and find ways to like go around the edges of it or even their stories of when people in Galilee were working their way down to Jerusalem that the people in Samaria would like yell at them or taunt them while they were on their way to the religious festivals. But the problem with animosity and hatred based on religious and racial and ethical and political lines is that they do not go away quickly. Take a look at the map of present-day Israel. Do you see what is in the place of Samaria? The West Bank. Do you think it is any coincidence that what was a stronghold of hatred based on religious and moral and racial lines is still today a stronghold of hatred based on racial, religious, political lines? That in the same way that during the time of Jesus, if you were going to go from the north up here to the south down here, you would try and avoid Samaria. In present day Israel, if you want to go from here down to here, you're going to work your way around this way and avoid the West Bank. That what Jesus is dealing with in the parable of the Good Samaritan is not just, well, gosh, we should really love people better. He's dealing with the heartbeat of racial, political, and moral lines that people were drawing to convince others that they don't need to love, that they're justified in not loving. So with that lens in mind, let's take a look at the parable. So in reply to the question, and who is my neighbor, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when it says going down, it literally means going down, that from Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles, but there's a 3,000 foot elevation drop to get from one to the other. So Jerusalem is about uh, about 2,800 feet above sea level, and Jericho is about 100 feet below sea level at the Dead Sea. So when it says going down, it literally means is working their way down there, which will be important later. And he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And then a priest happened to be going down the same road. So the priest is going not from Jericho to Jerusalem to do his priestly duties. He's on his way home from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side, and so too... A Levite. So in the same way the priest is going down that road, the Levite is going down that road and he came to the place, he saw the man and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine and then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which as far as we can tell was about 25 days worth of care. And gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, I imagine rather sheepishly, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Now, many uh, Jewish scholars after the time of Jesus have seen this story as a midrash, like a Jewish interpretation of Hosea 6.6, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And yet, just like the time of Jesus, so too we can have an incredible tendency to block out our ability to love our neighbor as ourselves when we are divided along religious and racial and political lines. So the question that I want us to ask is, what are the barriers that we see in this parable that might also be barriers to us to love our neighbor as ourselves? And the first barrier, I think is probably the most obvious one, is the barrier of religion. So how does an overfocus on religion and rules affect our relationships with others? You know, for some who might be more anxiously attached, what it can look like when we start getting into religious conversations is our fear of rejection comes up. And so rather than telling you what I really think, I'm just going to minimize my convictions and and, kind of gloss over our disagreements so there's a veneer of agreement. But the problem with that is we might be in relationship then, but I know in the back of my head you don't actually know me. You know the version of me that I think you can handle. Whereas for those of us maybe uh, a bit more avoidantly attached, uh, oftentimes it can show up like we're we're either indifferent or conveying like a superior posture. We, We might even just be dismissive offhand of what you think of your religious convictions. And in this story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, there's essentially like three primary religious characters. So there's the priest and the Levite, and there's also the expert of the law, And what's interesting is that more often than not, when people talk about why the priest and the Levite didn't help, it's because, well, in religious uh, tradition, in the Jewish religion, if you were to touch a dead body, you would be unclean for a certain amount of time. And even within uh, religious writings and Jewish writings, it says that even if your shadow touches a dead body, you're unclean. But what's going on here is not that they are headed to Jerusalem to do their religious duty. What's happening here is they're on their way home and they've forgotten that their religious duty does not actually need to affect every part of their life. That how they organized their life had made them run into the problem of thinking that If I'm following God, every aspect of my life needs to fit into the rubric of how do I be religious with God. And when we do that, we miss the people right in front of us. And I think what's interesting too is that when Jesus asked the expert of the law, what are the greatest commandments, the answer he gives to love God and to love others is the exact same answer that Jesus gives. So he knew the right answer which I think is one of the most insidious aspects of religion, it can make us think that if I know the right answer, I actually understand the right thing to do. We can start to believe that if my theology is right, if I've got all the right dots that I can cross off, or I know all the right things to say, that I'm going to know how to live that out well. One of the things we see in our house is, uh, we we have two boys and... um, like boys do, they like to fight each other. And oftentimes, the fighting each other ends with one of them crying. More often than not, it's the younger one crying. And so they'll come in together. And normally the crying one first, but the, one old, the older one will come in very quickly after with his defense attorney lines ready. He'll come to us and say things like, yeah, 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 okay, so Isaac, you know, he was doing that thing you told him never to do, so I decided to take matters into my own hands. I decided to rip him off the thing, and I don't know what happened. I think I need him in the face while we were doing it, but just so you know, he did the wrong thing. He was not obeying the rule, and the line that we have around our family is, I will look at my 10-year-old sweet son, Noah, and say, Noah, it's not enough to be right. It's not enough to know the right answer? Do you see what you being right has done to your brother? Like if all we're focused on is being right, we end up missing the people right in front of us. Religion has this insidious ability to box us in and blind us to not see beyond our borders of our religious system. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus rejects all attempts to shrink our scope of responsibility. He says, I don't want you to be trying to figure out how do you do the bare minimum to make me happy. That your job is to show love and be a neighbor to those who are coming into your midst because religion ultimately can be transactional and relationship is meant to be reciprocal. It forces us to break down all the tendencies we have to objectify people based on the category they fit in. I've been working for about 10 years at Union Gospel Mission. But before I started working there, I knew the category of homeless. I knew the category of sex offender. I knew the category of drug addict. The problem is I didn't know any of the people. And once I started to get to know the people and we were sitting together and I was hearing the story and I was, I, I was getting on the inside of what the pain was associated with all of those aspects in our culture, in our world, whether it's homelessness, whether it's having a felony, whether it is uh, dealing with a drug addiction, do you know what that does? You start getting moved with compassion. Compassion. You start recognizing that all the ways I boxed you in do not fit into the reality of you. And I wonder for us, what are the categories that we box people in? Is it black or white? Is it, and this one you'll like, card-carrying Trump-loving Republican? uber-ultra-liberal Democrat. What's the box? Maybe it is the box between gay and straight. Maybe it is the box between militaristic and pacifist. Because the emphasis of the kingdom of God is to force us to break out of all the ways we categorize people. Because if I categorize you, I will never know you. And if I never know you, I can't actually love you. And if I can't love you, I can't live out the mandate of the kingdom of God. So our job is to practice the presence of people. To break down all the ways that I just stay at a distance from you and assume I know you because I know the category you fit in and actually walk into community with you where I can look at you across the face and say, tell me who you are. It, it requires getting curious. It requires saying, I've assumed all these things about you, but I've never actually remembered that you're also created in the image of God that God actually has something to teach me through you. And this is, I think, one of the first barriers to us living out the mandate to love our neighbor as ourselves. But because Thanksgiving is coming up, I wanted to give you a few more table topics um, while you're at your Thanksgiving table. So the second barrier we deal with is political and social affiliations. You're welcome. All right, so here's my question. How do our political and ideological tendencies And affiliations affect our relationships. So quiet. (laughs) Maybe for those of us more anxiously attached, it looks like if I hear you criticizing me, I experience it as you rejecting me. Or for those of us more avoidantly attached, this would be me. What what I tend to do is, like, you know, go 30,000 feet up and just give you all the rational reasons why what I believe is right without actually dealing with the emotional components with it. I'm great at that. But what's even more problematic is that these differences are not just out there somewhere with our culture, they are here. They're in the church, big C. That all the ways that the culture divides, we have found ways to divide too. That this is what David Fitch in his book, The Us Versus Them Church, he defines this as the enemy making machine. All the ideological convictions that we hold so tightly get us to start buying into the false narrative that the expert in the law did. That he thought the point was who is my neighbor when Jesus keeps telling us the point is not who your neighbor is, the point is be a neighbor. Like the point is find the people that are in your world and be a neighbor to them. Don't try and figure out who fits and who doesn't. And yet, this binary thinking in our church context is allowing us as the church to increasingly become a tribalistic us-versus-them church that just mimics culture. And here's how it looks from my vantage point. On the one side, we have my brothers and sisters who are progressive Christians, of which I have leanings. And we will say things like, I take seriously the love of God. I take seriously justice. I believe that the God of Scripture is all-inclusive, all-affirming, expansive, beautiful, wants to bring everybody in. I don't believe that salvation is just about getting an individual saved. I believe it's about dealing with structural issues in our society, that I want to proclaim that when God said I'm gonna set people free, I'm gonna set systems free. And it's a beautiful gospel, Amen? amen? It's good news. But, over here, we have our conservative brothers and sisters, of which I have some leanings also. And we'll say things like, well, that's great that you take seriously the love of God and justice. You want to know what I take seriously? The Bible. I take seriously truth. I take seriously holiness. I take seriously moral order. I take seriously the historic, faithful tradition of the Christian church. I don't know what you're thinking over there, but just so you know, some of us still believe the Bible around here. That's nice that you want to include everybody. It's nice that you want to affirm everybody, but just so you know, that looks a lot more like the culture than it does like Jesus. So, the problem is we start lobbing grenades back and forth at each other and you know what it does? In order to try and affirm the image of God in somebody else, we forget that we have just demolished the image of God in our brother and sister. That my brothers and sisters who might be progressive Christians, we lob grenades at our conservative brothers and sisters in order to ascribe worth to those out there and then we miss the fact that we have just blown apart the image of God in our brothers and sisters here. And it goes both ways, does it not? And here's what I want to say. I got a word. I got a word for my progressive brothers and sisters, of which I have my inclinations towards. And my word for my progressive brothers and sisters is You are not the choir that one of the things I hear often um, by my my progressive brothers and sisters is, well, I love it when they start preaching about justice. I love it when they start preaching about race. I love it when they start preaching about structural evils. I love it when they start preaching about affirming everybody and bringing everybody in when the reality is you are not the choir. You have as much to learn about what it means to live out the love of Jesus and the justice of Jesus as our progressive brothers and sisters. And here's what I know. I work at Union Gospel Mission, which hypothetically should be one of the places where my progressive brothers and sisters who care deeply about poverty and structural issues and issues of homelessness, that they should be showing up. But what I know is that 95% of the people volunteering at the mission, they're from this group. They're the ones who would say, I am conservative in my Christianity and so we start lobbing grenades, missing the fact that the very high ground you've taken as progressive Christians, the ones you've put as an enemy are actually living out your high ground. And I, I have a word for my conservative brothers and sisters. My word for my conservative Christian brothers and sisters is you do not have a market on truth or morality. Have you heard of any conservative Christian churches where the pastors had some failings around their morality? Do you think it's a coincidence that sometimes holding so tightly to truth and morality makes you blind to your own immorality? Do you think it's possible that we might miss it And one of the things that I've noticed, too, is that while 95% of the people showing up to a place like the Mission to Volunteer might be conservative Christians, the reality is that some of them have some pretty whacked-out theology, (laughs) that it's possible to say we take seriously truth, and yet your truth doesn't look like the Bible I read, that it is possible for us to so divide ourselves along lines to miss the 95% of things we actually agree about. And I wonder what it would look like to have faith in the other and believe that their intentions are just as beautiful as yours. I wonder what that would look like and how that would change the church to to actually say that in the midst of an ever increasingly polarized church of us versus them, maybe we need a reintroduction to the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated that is a kingdom of an us with absolutely no them. That even if it's inside the church or outside the church, there is no them in the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. It is only us. And to the degree we spread it out and we separate it out, we actually start lobbing grenades and missing our calling. Because what I know is that the church today massively needs the wisdom of my progressive brothers and sisters who proclaim the love of Jesus and the justice of Jesus and breathing in to the structural powers that get in the way of our ability to live out the kingdom of God. And the church today needs an anchoring in truth from Scripture. We need an anchoring in morality. And to the degree that one of those you would say amen louder to is probably an inkling to where God might be needing to lead you and me. So the second barrier is politics. It's social affiliation and it's not just out there, it's in here. Which leads to the third barrier which we can all take a deep breath whew, it's just hurry. It's not real complicated. It's not as divisive. You could talk about that one at Thanksgiving. (laughs) The problem is, it's easy to say, and it's probably the hardest one to live. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Tipping Points. And in this book, he talked about a sociological experiment. And in in this experiment, they took a group of seminarians, and they told them, you are going to give a five-minute talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they to- he told them, okay, it's, we're here, but in order to get to the place where you're going to give the talk, it's across campus. And before they told them, okay, now you can go, they separated the group into two. And the first group, they said, okay, here's the deal. you got to give this talk, but like, the class started 30 seconds ago, and you're on. Like, you got to go. It's time. And the second group, they told them, you know, the class started like 30 seconds ago, but you don't actually give your talk till like a half hour into the class. So you've got time, you know, do your things, find a bathroom, get, get yourself all prepared to do your talk. And when they walked from one side of campus to the other side, they planted somebody. They planted somebody who would look stereotypically homeless and was crouching on the ground and was moaning in pain. And as the seminarians were walking their way over, those who were told, you got to hurry up, you got to get there, 10% of them actually even acknowledged the presence of this person. Most of which literally had to walk over him in some way to get to the place where they were going to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Versus those who were told you had a little time, 63% of them actually stopped and acknowledged this person of which, I mean, it makes you wonder who the other 37% were that are pastoring somewhere, but we'll leave that for another conversation. But the point of this story, as Malcolm Gladwell puts it, is this. He says that what this study is suggesting is that the convictions of your heart and the actual contents of your thoughts are less important in the end in guiding your actions in the immediate context of your behavior. The word, oh, you're late, had the effect of making someone who was ordinarily compassionate into someone who was indifferent to suffering, of turning someone in that particular moment into a different person. Dallas Willard says that hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. Carl Jung, who we don't often quote around here, um, said hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. John Ortberg said, "Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart, and it is getting worse." I was reading a book recently by a pastor named John Mark Comer called *The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry*. If you, uh, it just came out. Get it, read it. Um, but he talks about how this is getting worse in our culture. That before the digital age, when they did research on our attention span, our attention span was 12 whole seconds. Good job. But in the last 20 years, when they've redone this study, our attention span is currently down to eight seconds. And to put it in comparison, a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. We are losing to goldfish. And if we don't see the problem there, we're missing it. And it makes you wonder, how does our lack of margin and living with incredible amounts of hurry affect our relationships? What does it do to those of us more anxiously attached when we feel like we're just an annoyance to somebody because they've got too much going on so we're not going to impose and so we're never going to actually build that relationship and we feel rejected? Or for those of us more like me who are more avoidantly attached who will gladly use hurry as an excuse to not pursue connection. We might use... Great words like, "I have boundaries and "I have self-care," as reasons to avoid time with people. I'll do that. <laughs> it forces us to reckon with what uh, Richard Swenson is in his book "Margin," what he calls the need to get some sense of balance between our load and our limits, of how much time do I have that is available? Because this is not just a secular issue, that digital distraction in particular and hurry in general is a massively important kingdom calling. And it means intentionally planning for margin so that I can honor the image of God right in front of me. Because if I am rushing so fast, I'm going to miss the people God is putting right in front of me. So we have these barriers of religion, of political and social affiliations. We have these, this barrier of hurry in our culture. And many of us have been burned by these places. Many of us have been burned by religion. Many of us have been burned by the social, political, ideological affiliations. Many of us have been burned by the lack of attention somebody gave us because they were going so fast. And it can be easy to just exit and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to engage in that type of relationship. And yet, in the midst of that, we have to be challenged by the fact that although we may be wounded in our relationships, it's in those relationships, it's in loving neighboring that we actually get healed too. So I have a couple questions. The first one is, who do you have the hardest time picturing as your neighbor? Who is the religious, political, and racial other for you? And what might God be doing to nudge you to love that neighbor as yourself? Because in the same way that how we love image bearers that are our neighbors is how we love God, how we are divided with image bearers of God is how we are divided with God. We can't separate the two. And I think it means that we need to integrate some practices in our life. And and it starts with practicing the presence of the people right in front of us, like we were talking about. It means looking beyond the category and getting curious about who they really are. It means breaking down the wall of hostility and the rhetoric that gets bombarded and thrown back and forth between conservative and progressive Christians. It means fighting against the lie of us versus them. It means building muscles to disagree in person rather than settling for the caricature of the other from a distance. It forces us to get proximate so I can actually see you and hear you and listen to your heart. It means planning for interruptions so that we can integrate some margin into our life. I mean, what would it look like If somebody called you and said, hey, are you available? I want to hang out. And you said, no, and I'm not busy. (laughs) I'm just planning for margin. I want to be awake to how God is moving. I want to be available so that when that person comes into my world, it's not just an imposition. You can say, I have time for you because God wanted me to have time for you. And he was caring for you. He was there for you. So I have this hope that we as a church might be a place that can live out what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that we can break through these barriers in order to walk it out and that this little community could be a place that models that to the Twin Cities. Amen? I want us to do it and I love imagining it. So, as we close, I'm going to invite you to stand And as you do, I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come up. And if you have any prayer needs whatsoever, and maybe it is the answer to the question of who do you have the hardest time imagining as your neighbor? These folks would love to pray with you about that, to start breaking down the strongholds in our lives. And as you go, I'm going to ask if you're willing to just put your hands out and receive this benediction. And now, may the God who when he was on the cross, looked at you and said, you are worth it. May that same God free you from all the ways that we try and define our neighbor and may you be courageously able to be a neighbor. May you be the one that can be freed from the us versus them categories of the church and may you be freed from our addiction to busyness. And in the midst of that, may you walk with the love and the joy and the peace of Jesus, which passes all understanding. In the name of Jesus, amen. Have a great week. Thank you for being here.